This morning we are continuing our time in Mark. And uh, if you were here last week, you remember that we ended with the beautiful proclamation that, that Peter makes. Um, when Jesus asked the question of the disciples, who do people say that I am? And there's a bunch of different answers that the culture is giving at that time, that the people surrounding Jesus give. And then he looks directly to the disciples and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and he says, he's the spokesman, often, he's pretty bold. He steps up and he says, uh, you are the Christ, right? Which we looked at meaning uh, he's the anointed one. He's the one that they'd been waiting for, that would come, that would set all things right, that would restore the kingdom, that would uh, fix what is broken. And so that proclamation is a beautiful proclamation of faith. We also saw in Matthew's account where, where Jesus says to him, that's, that's awesome, Peter. And you didn't come up with that yourself. That's been given to you by God. That, that idea is, is given to you by the Holy Spirit. And so we have... Uh, we know that any proclamation that we would make that Jesus is the Christ comes from the Holy Spirit inside of us that's, that's changing our way of thinking, that's giving us a, a new perspective and a new way to see Jesus. What we alluded to last week was that Peter only got it a little bit. And so this morning, uh, if you read ahead, you may not be here because <laughs> this passage is tough. Um, but we're going to look at what does Jesus mean? What does Peter mean when he says that you are the Christ, you are the Messiah? Because Peter doesn't know what he means. He has an idea of who he thinks this Christ is and what he's come to do. But Jesus knows exactly who he is. Jesus knows what he's been sent to do. And today he's going to teach the disciples in that. To begin this morning, I want to share a story with you um, about the mission to the Alcas. Um, it took place in the 50s, and maybe you've heard the story because there's actually been a couple movies made out of it. There's some books written on it, but the story is about Jim Elliott and, and a guy named Pete Fleming, and they're missionaries, um, and they've been, they've been called by God to go to this people in Ecuador, and the people in Ecuador are historically, this tribe in Ecuador is historically known for hating outsiders, for killing outsiders, for anyone who had come. But, but Jim and Pete felt so compelled to bring the gospel to them that they devoted their lives to it. And so at a young age, in their 20s, uh, Jim flew from Oregon, where he was from, and down to um, Ecuador and lived in the city of Quito for six months, learning the Spanish language, which he didn't know. And so he learned Spanish, and that actually drew him to another village where he could learn the, the language of that tribe. And so he lived there for three years, learning their language, their culture, everything that they could find out about this people. And so this is a huge investment of his life. It was actually during this time where he met his wife Elizabeth, and they got married in Quito. Um, and so now he's got a, 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 a young wife, and then they have a daughter. And so um, but all the time, the devotion that he has is first and foremost to God and his call on his life to go to this people, this unreached people, with the good news that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the one that, that they've been waiting for, that they didn't even know that they needed. And so he's invested all this time. And so now there's, there's five of them. There's three more that have joined. One of them is uh, Nate Saint, and he's the pilot. And so they, they fly into this place. 
and they, they don't want to land, but they're trying to figure out a way to communicate with the people. And so uh, Nate comes up with this idea that they could circle in the plane and lower a bucket, and that bucket would stay stationary enough that the people could grab it and take things out of it. And so they begin giving them gifts to build relationship with this people. And after weeks of doing this, they, they spot a place where they can land. And so they, they chart it out, and they figure it out. And, and in January of 1956, they go, and they land on this place. And it's a couple miles from the village. But they, they're going to set up camp there, and they're going to try to communicate with the people. Um, a couple days later, uh, two women and a man come from the village, and they meet with them, and they have a meal with them. And then they encourage them to bring more people next time. And so several days later, two people come, uh, two women come, and as they go to approach them in the river, the Alka people have um, a warrior group that's hidden in the jungle and um, they actually come and they attack Jim and Pete and Nate and the two other men and they kill them. And you look at that story and you're like, that's a tragic story. Why would you begin with that? Because what drove Jim to this idea was written in his journal many years before in 1949 and it says this, it comes from our, our passage today. It says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And so this idea has compelled Jim Elliott to leverage everything that he has for the sake of a people that need this good truth that he has. And so Jim goes to that people. The beauty of the story is that it doesn't end there. The beauty of the story is that several years later, Elizabeth, his wife, and his daughter that's three or four at the time, and Nate Saint's sister go back to that village and live there with those people and actually get to share the good news of the gospel with them, and many are saved. That's, that's insane. That's crazy. And we look at it and we say, that's radical. But according to how Jesus has defined Christianity in this morning's passage... That's what it means to be a Christian. So I pray that this morning we'd have ears to hear. Like really hard stuff. Stuff that's going to challenge us in a lot of ways. But most of all that we would see that Jesus has actually suffered more than Jim Elliot, More than anyone else. He came and suffered in our place. And so we have a God who knows us, who loves us, and has died for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you. God, we thank you for the, your word that's been given to us. God, we thank you for the clarity that Mark writes down what you said to your disciples. And we get to hear it. And even as it rubs against our, our natural flesh, God, Lord, it's changing and transforming and conforming us to your will. So, Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for a story like that of Jim Elliot that would be one that we could say, man, that guy believed something and it directed his whole life. God, I pray that we would believe that today. Lord, that today as your gospel is proclaimed throughout Brevard County, throughout Florida, throughout our nation, throughout our world, Lord, that there would be people that would say, I believe that so much that I'm going to leverage my whole life around it. God, begin with us today. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see.
We thank you for this beautiful passage. Lord, help me to hide me behind your word today, Lord. May, may no one hear what Joel has to say, but may they hear what you have to say so that you would be glorified, that you would be made much of, that we would see your face in the beauty of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're just going to walk through the passage, and it begins right off the bat in verse 31. Like, what is Jesus? We talked last week when Jesus takes Peter and, and the disciples, and he's walking along the road. He's, he's going, he's doing, and he's teaching at the same time. So he's calling them to respond with, who do you say that I am? And they say, Peter says it, but they, they've all had the same conversations. They've all begun to see, even since the, the calming of the storm and the seas, Right where they were like, man, who is this guy? There is something about him that is different. And so when Peter makes his confession, it's a confession that they would all, all believe and that they would all make. And it's that, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus, Peter just made this proclamation that you're the Christ. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the one that's going to establish a kingdom where we will no longer have to suffer, where we will no longer be oppressed, where life is going to be restored, and we, the, particularly the chosen people, we will be on top. And that gets Peter really excited. And then Jesus comes with this to define what does it mean to be the Messiah? What does it mean to be the anointed one? It looks like this. It looks like suffering many things and being rejected by all those that he came to save. I don't know about you, but like Peter, I have a hard time with that. The idea of suffering in and of itself is extremely difficult. But the idea of suffering and being rejected, that nobody's even going to maybe even recognize that you're suffering. Because suffering can be this beautiful thing where you're like, man, you gave up something so that others would be, be helped, right? So much of uh, the, 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 the culture that we live in is about, hey, you need to give, right? You need to go out and make other people's lives better. The philanthropy, right? Giving so that others could be successful. But what if, what if our suffering, our giving, our denying of ourself is never even acknowledged? And instead, we're actually seen as uh, those who are evil. We're actually rejected, being told that we're false and that we're believing a lie. You see, that's what Jesus is saying, that, that the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is this beautiful word picture. We've talked Often, as we've looked at the book of Mark, Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And so when Jesus refers to himself, he often refers to himself as the Son of Man, while others will refer to him as the Son of God. Jesus is coming and he's identifying fully with our humanity. Also, the Son of Man points back to Old Testament Scripture, Daniel 7. I want to read it for us. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. This is Daniel with his vision of what was to come. He was a prophet, so he was proclaiming something that would happen in the future. 
He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Listen, this is what Peter is thinking when he's hearing, you are the Messiah, you are the chosen one. And even when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he's like, yes, that guy, the one who's going to come and he's going to have dominion and he's going to be given glory in a kingdom. That's the one I'm talking about. But we talked about it last week. These disciples, they wanted that fruitful result. They wanted that glorious end without the faithful means that Jesus is going to talk to them about today. And often we want that glorious end. We want things to be set right. When we're sick, we want to be healed. When we lose our job, we pray that God would give us another one. And and in His kindness and in His grace, He often does that. But our focus tends to be on not who Jesus is in the moment where we're suffering, but what can we get from Jesus to get to this place where we're comfortable. This place where we feel like we have control again. This place where we have the approval of those around us. And yet Jesus' promise is that you will suffer and be rejected just as He was. There is an ultimate end. There is a glory because Daniel was not lying when he wrote this. But that glory may not happen in our lifetime. That glory may not be fully known. It won't be fully known until Jesus comes again and sets things right. But he's begun the process. Because the Son of Man has come And he must suffer. And he must be rejected. And thankfully we have the whole book. So we know that he did suffer. He was rejected. And he bore it all the way to the cross for us. I read a a great um, part of a great book in preparation for this week. The Cross Before Me, Reimagining the Way of the Good Life. Written by Rankin Wilborn and Brian Greger. And and one of the things they say in it is, is that Jesus is God's response to suffering. God became human, and being fully human, He suffered. God submitted to the same constraints of all suffering flesh, hunger, thirst, fatigue, temptation, and death. Listen, the reality is that as Jesus began His suffering, not, on the, not in the passion, not where He begins to go to the cross and where He's beaten and He's flogged and he, He's wrongly accused. No, He began His suffering when He entered into this humanity that is broken. As soon as he came in and he was birthed in a stable, he, he was entering into suffering with us. Our, our human existence is an existence where we're going to suffer. That's just what has happened because of our fallen nature. We have ruined what was perfect by our sin. Through one man's sin, through Adam's sin, Brokenness entered into the world. And yet through one man's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, that is being restored and made right in an already not yet form. And so this morning we begin to see that, that how was it made right? It was made right because this Jesus, this God-man, fully God and fully man, entered in to our suffering. So we're one verse in. It's already pretty heavy, but we got 
a couple more to go. Let's keep reading. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter is having the same reaction that many of us are having right now. That's not what I signed up for. That's not when you said, hey, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's not what I was thinking that we were going to be doing. So obviously, Jesus, you have to be wrong. Maybe, maybe you're just a little mistaken. Maybe it's not you that's going to suffer, you that's going to be rejected, but maybe other things. But it can't be you. You're the Messiah. You're the chosen one. That's not the way it goes. Listen, this isn't a new thing that Jesus is doing. This is the way that it's always been portrayed, that, that the Savior would come and save us. He would come and save us by suffering in our place. By being broken and rejected in our place. When you look at Isaiah 53 and you read the beautiful passages about a suffering servant who would come and redeem a people, that is Jesus. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, talking about Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Since the very beginning, this has been the plan of God to save and rescue a broken people to himself by entering into our suffering. To be even more specific, Hosea 6, 1-3, and this was actually a, a conversation that we had in community group, like, like was it ever really pointed to that, that Jesus would die and then rise again? Well, Hosea 6, 1-3 says this, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days He will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Verse 2 said that after two days He will revive us, and on the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Listen, this idea of a suffering servant who comes and dies and then is resurrected has actually been portrayed in the Old Testament. And so the disciples, learning the Old Testament, growing up in the Jewish tradition, should have this idea. And, and they have a, a certain idea. They have a Messiah idea. They have a Christ-anointed one idea. But they see it as the, the David who comes and establishes a nation. And Jesus is saying, no, the way that I'm coming to do it is not just for this people, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. I'm going I'm to make a way for every person to be drawn into the family. And we saw it as he went out of the Jewish region into the Gentile region and did the same miracles for them that he was doing for the Jewish people. Jesus is coming and he's going to restore and save all of us. But really what we have today are two different ideas. We have a, we have a theology, which is a study of God, an understanding of God, a theology of the cross, 
that Jesus is presenting. And we have a theology of glory that Peter's really clinging to. This idea that, no, I want that glorious end without the means. I want everything made right. I want perfection. I want utopia. And yet, we're not going to experience that until we experience heaven. When Jesus comes and finally sets all things right. But in the meantime, what we have is we have a God who has entered into our humanity, who has suffered with us, so that when we suffer, we get to say, I have a God who knows what this feels like, who has walked in this, and he, I, I'm never alone. I'm never alone because I have one who has come and who has walked in this way. Daniel Aiken, in his Exalting Jesus and Mark, he says that Peter offers Jesus the crown without the cross. He thinks he has a better plan than God does. Peter wants a Jesus who fits his agenda. He thinks he knows the kind of Messiah Jesus needs to be and attempts to reshape and redefine him to fit his conception. Do we do that? Does anybody else? Like, that's got to be something that we could confess, that we have an idea of what good looks like and often when Jesus is, or God is doing something in our lives that doesn't fit into that, we say that can't be God. That's not good. Are we not often guilty of doing the same thing? Give me a Jesus I can control, one I can conjure up in my image and likeness. No, you and I must learn and affirm the ways of God, not man. You may not fully understand it. It may not be easy or safe. It will, however, be best. In fact, according to Romans 12, 2, it will be perfect. The will of God is perfect. So this morning, we're given the beauty of, of a disciple who, like us, doesn't get it, and a, and a Savior who rebukes him, okay? He rebukes him sharply. And this, there's often times where sometimes we need just a gentle conjoling and sometimes we need an actual rebuke from the Savior to say, that is the wrong way of thinking. You are wrong. You are trying to make me something that I am not. And I am God and I get to tell you who you are, not the other way around. And so, we have to see even that as love. Often, many of us are adults and we have children, and, and we will rebuke our children, sometimes just out of anger and frustration, but hopefully, often, out of love. We, we tell them they are wrong so that they would move into what is right and good and, and beautiful, right? That's our hope. And Jesus is doing the same thing with Peter. He is not rebuking him because he hates him. He's rebuking him because he's wrong and he loves him and he wants what is right for him. And he's also rebuking him in front of the disciples to say, hey, that way of thinking is wrong. And all of you need to hear it. He turns to the crowd and he rebukes Peter openly. It's not the last time that Peter's going to kind of get, get himself in some hot water by running his mouth too much. If you've read the story, you know that he's, he promises that he's never going to turn on Jesus, and then he denies Jesus three times, but in the end, Jesus also restores Peter again. That's the beauty of it, that we have the story of people like us who don't get it, and yet we have the story of a faithful Jesus who is patient and kind and strong 
and rebukes us when we are in our ignorance, when we are just wrong, because he loves us. Jesus goes on after the rebuke of Peter to more clearly define what he's saying. And calling the crowd to him, verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Following Jesus means losing your life. Now maybe that's a a physical Thing. Maybe that's actually like Jim Elliot, where he, he goes to a people because he's following what Jesus has called him to do and he dies. Or maybe, and this one might even be harder, maybe it's less heroic. Maybe it's a simple daily dying to what you want, to what you've, how you've defined good. And saying, Lord, I, I don't know what's good today. I have ideas of of how I think this day should go. And yet, God, it's not my day. It's your day. My life is not my own. It's yours. To do with it what you want. And so will you lead me in this daily, hourly, minute, second dying to myself? Because I'm going to want to rise up and try to do it my way again. And yet I know that your will is perfect. But that also doesn't mean that he won't call you to come and die, literally, physically. You see, he can do anything he wants with our lives. And the goal uh, of all of Scripture points to a God who, who is going to be glorified. A God who is going to be made much of. And if he'll use a beautiful, heroic, powerful story... Like Jim Elliot and, and the other four missionaries who went with him and gave their lives for the sake of the gospel going forward, then he can do it in our lives. But he can also do it in the daily grind in our culture where as we begin to stand up and repeat the things that Jesus says and people would reject us, they would call us liars, they would call us Bigots, they would call us um, people who won't compromise. That's going to be extremely difficult. It will lead us into a type of suffering. Now there's times, and we have to be careful because there's times where um, as sinful people, even as Christians... We make mistakes and we suffer because of our mistakes. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when we do things the way that Christ has called us to do them and we suffer because of that. But the beauty of it is that we have one who has suffered with us. 
We have one who has suffered, and if we would suffer with him, we will also share in his glory, because that's what he says. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father? There's a promise. He's going to come in glory. And those who would suffer with him will be glorified with him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you know any of his story, um, an incredible man who loved Jesus, probably not an incredible man, just a man who loved Jesus and God used him incredibly. That's probably a better qualifier for him, okay? Just a regular man who loved Jesus. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian during the, in, in Germany during the Nazi regime. Eventually he was martyred for his faith, but he wrote... Um, a beautiful book. If you get a chance to read it, it's called The Cost of Discipleship. Fantastic. Challenging. Only read it if you want to be changed, like if you want to really be challenged. But one of the things that he wrote is the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that, it is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. Jesus summons to the rich young man, was calling him to die because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. But we do not want to die, and therefore Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death as well as our life. The call to discipleship, the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, means both death and life. I heard it recently put like this, the gospel is only hope for dead people. You think like people that have already died. No, like people who are dying to themselves. People who are willing to lay down their lives to take up their cross and daily follow Jesus. Then the gospel becomes hope. Then the gospel becomes the good news. Because now, instead of looking for the reward and the uh, glory and the expectation and the achievements in this life, I look to something outside of this life because now my life is hidden with Christ. That it's no longer I who live, but Christ in me, as Paul writes. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, there's two different ways, and and Jesus defines it in verse 33. Setting your mind on the things of God, not on the things of man. God has a way, but we have a way in our mind. And so what we have to do is we have to set our minds on the things of God. This morning the call is clear. I don't have to 
to, to use different words other than what we've been given in Scripture. The call is clear to come and die. If anyone would follow after me, verse 34, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Denying yourself means that you have to die to your wants, your plans, your view of the future, and what it, you think it should rightfully hold, and you lay it at Jesus' feet and you say, God, my life is not mine. Do with it what you will. To deny himself, to take up his cross. Listen, we've, we've been given this life to walk in. And some of it's going to be hard. Some of it's going to look like suffering and rejection. And so we're going to walk with those things. We're going to take up our cross and we're going to follow Jesus. Now the beauty is that Jesus goes to the cross and he dies. But three days later, even according to, to Old Testament scripture, he rose again. He defeated sin and death so that at the cross, when he dies, he takes our sin and our shame because he was perfect and didn't deserve it. He took it for us. Because all of us have sin and shame. All of us have brokenness. We've all gone against and even told God how He should do it. And yet Jesus knew that. And because He was the perfect sacrifice, He could come and die in our place. And He did. And He was beaten. He was bruised. His body was crushed. He was put on a cross. He was rejected by all of the, the people that He came to save, including these disciples. They, at some point, they all leave and go away. And there is unbelief. And yet, three days later, he rose again from the dead, defeating sin and death. He appeared to all of these disciples and more. And then he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. He, he mediates for us. And he sent his Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us so that now we can walk in this way. It's not, you don't need to conjure up the ability to suffer. A, you live in a world where suffering is a reality. B, you have the Holy Spirit inside you if you are in Christ. And He will teach you what it looks like to walk and to trust and to obey. To have joy. Listen, Peter, yeah, he doesn't get it in this moment. We've already said there's going to be more moments where he doesn't get it. But at the end, after this filling of the Holy Spirit and this going out and this preaching of the gospel, the good news of Christ, Peter writes a letter to the church. And I want you to hear what he writes because it's beautiful. This same Peter who's rebuking Jesus and saying, no, that's not the way it can happen, then writes in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14 and 19, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Finally, 19 says, Therefore, let, all, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter doesn't get it in the moment, but there's something that takes place. The power of, of Jesus' Life, death, and resurrection. The power of the Spirit indwelling in Him. The power of the Gospel changes Peter to believe and to not only believe, but to tell others, call them to that same belief. Rejoice in suffering. Because you know that if you suffer, you suffer along with Christ. I pray that today that's good news. Maybe even for some of you that are walking through suffering now. You have a God who has suffered 
You have a God who has, who has seen broken relationships. You have a God who has, who has experienced people rejecting Him. Even as you're being rejected, as you're walking through those things. You have a God who knows you and loves you. Cry out to Him in the midst of that suffering. And know that, that as you experience that suffering, if you are in Christ, you're experiencing communion with Him. Maybe you know somebody that's suffering. Today, you have, you have the bomb that they need. You have the good news that, that there is a God who has come and suffered in your place and suffered with you, and that at the end, there will be glory. There will be this beautiful resurrection, this beautiful setting of all things right. But in the moment, you may not experience that. And yet, this is true, that Jesus has suffered with you. And so maybe you need to go and share that good news with somebody. And if you aren't suffering and you don't know somebody who's suffering, chances are that soon you will suffer. And so I pray that you would carry this with you into that. That you would know that your God has come to restore and to save us out of this broken world. Given us His peace. Given us His righteousness. And loved us enough even to rebuke us sometimes. Even to change our way of thinking. And so I pray that today we would follow Him. That we would take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank You. God, some of that language we don't even understand. We don't, we don't know what... The, it's not clear sometimes what, what the crosses that you would have us bear today. And yet we know that we would bear your name. That we would proclaim the name of Jesus. God, we know that we need to deny ourselves and the things that we want. The, the, the good life that we've defined in our own head and that we would lay it down. And in humility come to your feet and say, God, it, it, my life is not my own. You do with it what you will. I pray for some of us today, um, Lord, with children, I pray that the children would understand that at an early age. God, and as they go and they give their lives for the sake of the gospel, Lord, that we would encourage them and we would support them, even if that looks crazy and radical. God, I do ask that that we would not see these things as abnormal, but we would see them as being Christian. That we would see a, a, a change in countercultural life as being the norm rather than the exception. God, that you would produce that in us, Lord, and that our neighbors and our enemies and, and our co-workers and, and fellow students would see something in us that would point them to you. Lord, we ask all of this with confidence, trusting that, that you're the one who's doing all of this. And we thank you for it, Lord. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.